Hello to all of our listeners. We're really excited to be back um, ready for the new academic year. This is the start of a new series of podcasts with Dr. Robert Sharples, author of Teaching EAL, Evidence-Based Strategies for the Classroom and School and Lecturer in Language and Education at the University of Bristol. And I'm also joined by our very own Joe Thompson, EAL content writer at Twinkle. So we'll be with you throughout the academic year, bringing you an episode every half term alongside Twitter live chats and network meetings to support you in leading EAL in your setting. We'll also have packs of resources to download and reading and research materials for you to look at at your leisure. Our first episode today is focused on making a strong start and we'll then look ahead to an episode on assessment, one on language across the curriculum, the importance of home languages and the school community and finally ending in July on a reflection and review episode. Welcome back Rob and Joe. how are you both? Do you feel rested and ready for the new academic year? Hiya. Yes, definitely well rested. Had a lovely couple of weeks off. Thank you very much. It's great to be back with you both. Looking forward to it. So today we are looking at making a strong start. So I think it's really important um, at the start of the academic year for you to feel ready for whatever um, the year sort of has in store for you. So what um, are you thinking, Joe, for making a solid start? What are your tips I think a lot of it depends on where you are in your setting, what kind of setting um, you're in, if you're new to the role or if you're carrying on, um, what your school or setting does already, what's already in place and what you're hoping um, to put in place. Perhaps have a look at your school development plan and see what's on there and how EAL ties in ties into that. Is it a priority for your school? If so, which areas particularly um, are a priority? have a think about all the different processes that may be in place already or that you want to to set up. I think it's going to depend, it's going to be different for everybody. So it's important to consider what you've got already and where you are and where you'd like to go to, I think. Yeah, what would you say, Rob? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the start of any new year, it, it's always a, we think it's going to be this deep breath, this fresh start, this New Year's resolutions. And of course, the minute you come back, it's just absolutely mad, helter-skelter through, and all of a sudden it's Christmas, and then it's Easter, and then you get a chance to breathe again. So I think, actually, if you can find an hour just to, to cut yourself off, take that deep breath and think, right, what are my priorities? What are the needs of my kids? You can tackle one thing first, and then we can build on to other stuff. So I'm sure we'll talk about how we make a, a strong start. But I'd say, you know, if you can pick one thing that you want to be different this year at the beginning of the year and just keep checking in it, that's what's going to make the difference. Rather than saying this year we're going to run the perfect EAL provision. I'm sure I'm sure you will. But but realistically, you know, the one thing could be the huge difference in those kids lives. Yeah, that's really true. Um, it's definitely true about hitting the ground running as well in September. I think we all feel that, don't we, when at the start of the new year? Um, so in, looking at sort of processes and induction of new arrivals, what would you say, Joe, were your tips on the induction for new arrivals, which with EAL can happen throughout the year, can't it, really? It doesn't have to just be September. But how would you plan for yeah, that definitely. for the year? Definitely, yeah, it happens throughout the year. Obviously, you're likely to get an influx at the beginning of the year, but like you said... Beginning of the year, but like you said... So I would um, look at what you've got already. Is there a process for inducting new arrivals? Is there a different one for EAL learners or is it the same? Um, 
how does that work in your school? What does it look like? Are there different milestones on that, um, on that, along that process, on that journey? Um, if there isn't anything in place, then perhaps that might be your priority, um, because obviously you're going to have a lot um, throughout the year. So that might be the one thing. Perhaps if that's not in place already, that might be your first um, thing that you'd like to work on. Um, so have a look what the process is or if you're right in the process. And it's just things like welcoming them, buddying them up, school tours. How do you involve the family? How do you make sure that you've got they've got all the information that they need to start the school? How does that work? How do you communicate with the family? Um, finding out as much as possible about their um, education so far and the journey that they've had before they've arrived with you and what that looks like because obviously for everybody that's going to look completely different um they could have moved from you know afghanistan or ukraine they could have moved from birmingham they could have you know all different situations so find out as much as possible um and see if you can get access to as many um records as you can obviously if they've come from another country that's quite tricky yeah um, with the induction of new arrivals, Rob, what would your recommendations be? Yeah, I think I think yeah, I can agree with everything you've said there, Joe. So things that I'd really want to pick up on are what's the student's home language proficiency and literacy as well. So a good way of thinking that is, is when and where do they use language? Because what we think of as literacy is very much like a, a school-driven print literacy, whereas a lot of kids from different parts of the world, literacy will really be begin with sort of family telling in the extended family. So there's some, some absolutely fantastic um, research looking at the role of grandmothers as, as orchestrators of their literacy. Um, so are, are these children using their languages for faith, for example? And, and anything around family and faith and community, that's where a lot of kids are using uh, first language in developing the early literacy skills that aren't really visible in our education system, um, but really underpin the kind of work that they do. And the evidence on this is, is absolutely clear. Literacy, language proficiency in any language, it cuts across. So it doesn't immediately transfer, you know, uh, my literacy in English is quite good. I speak a little bit of, well, very little bit of French. I'm not equally literate in French, but the literacy skills that I've developed in English mean that I'll pick it up in French were I you know, to apply myself I have to be honest um, much much quicker so any information we can get about uh, how children are using their languages what literacies they have even if it doesn't seem immediately relevant because we know that it will be that really powerful support for what you want to do with them in the classroom I think buddying is is absolutely important as well we I think we worry too much about academic English um, in those in those very early weeks we try to assess proficiency we try and get people into kind of immediate um, remedial work but actually a lot of that especially for for children who have just arrived in the country that will come quite quickly anyway so buddies are really strong and I think a huge um, shout out to the young interpreter scheme set up by the Hampshire MTAS so what they do is they they get children who are well established in the school whether they're quote unquote local kids or, or just have been here a while and they act as interpreters not for a different language but for just how the school works so you can have monolingual children interpreting the school for bilingual children and so on. So that's a really, really powerful way. Having loads of bilingual books uh, in the library as well. So part of that induction process is maybe making the school connect with them on a number of levels. 
they've got books that they can see their language in and and they've got buddies who are waiting there to to meet them and welcome them um you're interested in in how they use language generally and of course you're in there you'll also have a, an english language proficiency assessment but it's worth saying any proficiency assessment that you make has a really short lifespan on it you 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 know six days six weeks six months later the picture would have changed so yeah it might be useful to do an english language assessment as part of your induction process but i wouldn't i wouldn't rely on it for anything meaningful at all yeah that's really good advice um and then looking forward for the eal folders um i know that can be either electronic or paper folders what would you say should be in there, Joe, if you're sitting down in September, sort of planning ahead for the year? What would you say needs to be ready? I think you need to know your children and your communities really well. So you want to know which languages they're speaking. Um, if they're not speaking them at school, then what are they speaking at home? Where are they speaking? Like Rob said, where are they speaking those languages? Who do they speak those languages to? Is it a particular person or is it lots of people you know do they speak it at home or do they just speak it to dad when they go to somewhere else um do they speak it when they go to a supplementary school but they don't speak it at home are they speaking it all the time i think you need to get a really good handle on what languages they're speaking when and um who to um across your school as well know if you've got any um dominant languages where you've got um more children that speak um a certain language or have you got just a mixture of all languages um, I think it's really important that you know have kind of a good overview of that similarly with your staff as well because you're going to have staff that are going to be speaking um, a number of languages so have you got a good handle on who those people are can they read can they write can they understand and um, what's their level of proficiency in their languages and when and how might you be able to draw on um, other members of the school community so that's really good to have an understanding of that um, as we've already talked about, your induction process and what that looks like, um, all the resources that you might need to have in place. You so might need going to have, to have a budding system. What does that look like? Who does that involve? Is there a set um, program that you follow? Have you got the resources um, to back that up? Are there some resources that you can have ready for your staff when um, bilingual children arrive that help them just to settle into the school get to know the school like Rob said it's not about the academic side of things to begin with all you want them to do is to settle and to feel safe that's our number one priority yeah yeah, yeah so how are you, how are you going no go on Joe. how are you how are you going to do that so I do you have a buddying system do the children um that are going to be the buddies are they sufficiently trained to know what that looks like um, different resources that you can um, use, games that you can play with them, art that you can, any activity that's just going to settle them and encourage them to feel safe in school before we worry about any of the academic language and proficiency and things. You want them to feel safe at school and to be happy at school. That's our number one priority. And I think in my experience, lots of teachers kind of will come in with the, oh, but I need to know where they are at this level and what, what kind of level work do I give them? And, you know, what's their proficiency in English? And I just, I used to say to them, you know, think about their situation, put yourself in their shoes. We need to just make sure that their well-being um, and that their safety is, is our number one priority in school. I think that's so true. And it, it's perhaps worth putting in that bigger context as well, that EAL is a very restrictive way of thinking about 
bilingual children and their needs in education. Um, I think if we had a blank sheet of paper, we probably wouldn't invent something called EAL. We'd, we'd look at how we make our schools more multilingual and more linguistically rich for, for all children. Um, so we're sort of a victim of our own success here. The, the, the Bell Foundation and others who produced the assessment uh, toolkit and others, you know, Nassi and, and others have done ones as well. Um, now we've got a tool for assessing English proficiency and not many tools actually that are really well established for doing all the other things we need to do. So we tend to focus on assessing English proficiency. Yeah. And I think it's 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 right to think, you know, in, in that moment, and it probably is just a moment of pause you, you might carve out at the beginning of the year. Um, there's no set recipe for, for what we do with the AL. Um, it is about exactly as you say, trying to respond to the needs of those individual pupils. So getting to know them, making them feel safe. It's not low aspirations. It's not saying we're going to not teach them academic English. It's about recognising that actually what we've got the tools to identify accurately is only one part of the puzzle. And we can overemphasize the things that we have tools. We, can, we measure what's measurable, essentially. So actually focusing on that whole person, we know very, very strongly from, from a whole field of research around something called um, foreign language anxiety or FLA um, and motivation research is that if that person feels safe and secure, they learn much, much better. And of course, we know that from education generally as well, but it, it's very significantly true of how we acquire languages. So all these things that we can do is to connect children to the life of the school, to make sure they know they have a place here, to feel secure in that place they have there. That has a direct impact on their ability to acquire and use all language, including the very highly technical stuff that we'll ask of them at certain points in the curriculum. So um, as well as as well as doing this work to, to make them feel safe and secure and look after their well-being, families as well. How can we connect the family to the school? And about building those connections rather than think of interventions to, to roll out. It's commonly felt to be easier in primary. And I'm going to defer to my, my expert colleagues here. I'm, uh, uh, you know, speaking from a research perspective. Then it is in secondary because you have less contact with families. But um, there's really good examples of work where, where people have been able to do it. And again, bringing the family in, really what that means is, is bringing the whole child in and bringing the language in as well. So find those different points of connection. Um, it's like what's happening I think what's happening with a child is worth talking about. And I know that, that we've talked about this, the three of us, a lot. When you come into a new school and you don't necessarily speak a great deal of English, when perhaps we're thinking more of new arrivals here than, than children who, who are yeah, but moving through the school. You know, your brain is on absolute overdrive, making sense of this whole bunch of new sensations and language and, and people. Routines. Um, routi yeah, routines as well. You are You are soaking it all up and your brain is very very actively trying to make those connections identify those patterns some linguistic right your, your brain is working very very hard on identifying new grammar structures for example and making sense of them but you might not be doing a lot visibly and, and i think you know we've talked about the silent period before as well so just thinking all the time that we're creating that space rich rich exposure to stuff i would be really cautious and i don't know what you think jaron helen but really cautious about any kind of eal specific withdrawal at the very, very beginning. I know it's a controversial topic, but we've got to think maximum rich exposure to the, the, the school scaffolding supported as much as possible. And I think that's what gives 
new arrivals particularly the very very best start in the year and i think a lot of that also applies for kids who are moving through the years um but who are developing their english as they go yeah i'd agree with you there with the withdrawal um i think it's much better to sort of have them in the classroom and making those connections that's that's much better um, and along with the secondary um sort of bringing the families in i used to run a coffee morning on a friday morning um i think I had none the first week sort of won the second week but as it went on yeah, um it, it was really successful and it was brilliant so so it was one, one a month I think um in the end but it was a brilliant way of connecting with those families and you know getting everybody together it was lovely so there is ways to do it in secondary but I do I do agree it's a little bit more difficult than primary what do you I think, think Joe? I think they can, um, families often can be reluctant to come into school because perhaps they don't speak English yet or to the level that they feel that they need to to be um, involved in school. So sometimes in my experience, parents have kind of shied away from that. Um, and we, you know, we want to work quite hard to do the opposite and draw them in. So if it's things that are quite low stakes, like a coffee morning or come and look at your, um, you know, like an open classroom, just come and look at what the children are doing um that seemed to work um a little bit better in terms of engagement and the numbers um later on yeah. i ran an english um ran some english sessions um for families and again like you said helen to begin with it was just me and the biscuits um and then it was a couple um but, but then the numbers grew and we invited the children as well and they kind of were learning alongside their parents and carers so that was quite a nice kind of way of doing it another um, thing that's been quite um, successful I've seen is when you do a multilingual um, club so a story club or a songs club or a languages club or what whatever you're going to call it but you invite lots of people in from the school community so it can be um, parents carers it could be um, I don't know the shopkeeper down the road you know it, all people from the local community um, and you just invite them to come and read a story tell a story sing a song um, a nursery rhyme anything um, because that shows you that you're valuing their languages from day one um, yeah. and is a great way of engaging I think the school community when like what Rob said earlier about a multilingual school how do we how do we do that all these things I think can make a big difference yeah. Joe you mentioned an EAL folder and I realized we haven't actually I know there's actually really nice twinkle resources on what to put in your EAL folder but as we think around this idea of the multilingual school and, and making it a space where um, EAL children feel they have a, a meaningful home how would you put that into practice in the in the first weeks of term? So what, what would you actually put in your EL folder that would structure this for you? In terms of the teacher's folder, you mean, as opposed to an yeah, EL? Yeah, I just think, kind of... yeah, as we, as we sort of, well, either, I suppose, I was just thinking back to what people could do in the, the first few weeks to set up this kind of rich space that we're talking about. Um, so lots of games, I think. Games are quite a simple and quick way. Um, that you can share languages so I we used to um, just play matching pairs or snap um, and you can do that on whatever topic you want and that's quite simple and and it and I would deliberately get them wrong and make them laugh and it's all about building that connection um, they would teach me in their languages I'd you know drop in a bit of English here and there but that wasn't the sole purpose of, of, 
of the game or of the activity. Um, I'd do that with them a little bit. If I had a TA, I'd encourage them. But then moving away from the adults and the children working alongside the children, um, because that was really good, because then they're learning from each other. It takes the onus off of you. Um, to, I think teachers often feel that it's them and they have to be meeting that need, but they've also got 29 other needs that they need to be meeting. Um, so lots of games, lots of activities. But if you've thought about it before and you've got those things ready in place, you're not having to panic um, and go and find them. And so I used to have uh, at school, we had a kind of, we had it on the network where it was, you know, new arrivals folder. Here are the games. Here are the um, activities that you could do that are very low stakes and not about English necessarily. They're just games. They're just to have fun, build relationships. Um, and then it becomes something that the children did themselves um, and it kind of just grew from there, really. So I think that would be what I would suggest doing. Have a bank of those so that you're not having to think on your feet um, quite quickly. Yeah, I agree with you there, Joe. With the secondary school, um, because you've got all those different um, subjects as well, it was sort of panic mode if we had a new arrival halfway through the year and you didn't have those resources. So having it electronically... Um, is a really good idea, isn't it, with all the folders? Um, it all also, in yeah, go on. Sorry, Helen. There's also a you know getting to know as much about them as you can. So there's a couple of resources on the website. Um, one is an all about me booklet where you invite them to share with you their family, their history, their you know anything that they're they're wanting to share and tell them. Um, tell you about themselves their hobbies and everything um, and I also included in that folder um, a welcome booklet so it was kind of um, useful phrases that they might need um, keywords for things maybe a map of the school maybe key people of the school with their photos and their names and that went um, when it was the most successful I it went home and came back so the children were taking it home talking about it with their families in their home languages and in English then, and it went back and forth between school and home. And that was a really useful, um, a really useful tool. Um, there's one for younger learners. There's one coming for older learners. And there's also an adult, an adult version as well coming soon. So hopefully that's the kind of thing that would be quite helpful. You know, they're also helpful, isn't it? All about, in those, those early days, just helping the children feel feel part of something and um, I, I just want to pick up on something you said around that responsibility you feel to to be the one who develops children's language because that's not actually as as you know as as you said it, it's not <laughs> that's not how children acquire the language they need for school right they don't get it through this direct connection um with the teacher so that there's there's two main things that that um in, in very sort of very general term there's two main things that that you'll need to uh, acquire english for school um number one is they need um lots of lots of um exposure to really good quality language um, and that can be yeah and we'll, we'll mention pauline gibbs work at the end but that could be from sitting at a table where they're talking about a science experiment or some kind of an art project some practical activity they're doing just being involved in the group talk counts as high quality language um where it doesn't have to be sort of very formal academic ease. It's just being part of purposeful language, I should say. Um, 
And then they need lots of opportunities to use it meaningfully. So not just to reproduce it like on a worksheet or a, a drilling activity, but to try and do something with that language. And lots and lots of input output in meaningful interaction is that's your basic recipe. I call it um, when I'm when I'm teaching this stuff, um, I call it the um, yeah. hokey cokey, right? Because you, you put your language in, you put your language out, you shake it all about and literally no one has ever laughed and <laughs> I'm going to keep it going because I think it works quite nicely that it does not land well. So you've got your you've got your input output and, and it's got to be for meaningful interaction. And so that's that for me is that's the big argument for mainstreaming as soon as possible, because that's where you get access to that language in, in the real curriculum context. Um, in none of that is the teacher required. So you get that, you know, from each other, from peers. You also get it from the teacher. You get it from the TA. So the, the, the teacher contributes a huge amount. And they're the, the subject expert language user. And they're a particularly valuable person doing it. Because, of course, you know, you do need teachers in schools. But, um, you know, for, for all self-discovery, you know, you, you, you need the expert teacher there, of course. Um, and, and they're going to be guiding and contributing a huge amount of really good language. But lots and lots of that is going to be happening with peers um, as, as they work through and talk through through the lessons so that really takes the pressure off like we know that from really good quality really robust research over decades that that's how children um, acquire those languages and that to me is is hugely reassuring it's not all on your shoulders in fact a lot of it is setting up conditions in which that can happen so we talked a little earlier about why it's so important to, to connect children to the life of the school and the community of the school well here's a here's a kind of evidentiary reason why is that then they're they've got those connections to have access to the language to be able to use the language and that's what we know powers it forward um yeah so so having all that exposure and opportunity to use it is really important and the other thing they need is explicit teaching but that i think i would say and there's different schools of thought on this i would say that can come a bit later I think we often front load explicit, explicit teaching. Mm. I can see because you don't know this on the podcast, but we can see each other. Right? There's a video connection as well that we don't record because you don't want to see how untidy our houses are. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're all nodding away at this. We tend to front load explicit teaching and that I think misunderstands how languages are acquired. Yes, you need lots of um, correction when when kids get things wrong. But um correction or corrective feedback as i would call it um doesn't mean sort of telling them off and telling them the right answer that is the most yes yeah, some, some amazing studies on this one the most used type of feedback in studies in different countries of different types of teachers including language and, and subject teachers the the most used type of feedback is correction where the teacher supplies the correct answer in studies of what works, the least effective type of feedback <laughs> is direct correction where the teacher supplies the, the correct answer. Um, we are we are drilled into it, socialised into it, because we all went to school and, you know, it's so familiar and automatic. Um, the most effective and also, generally speaking, least used is where the teacher pauses. That pause, that's feedback, right? The, the learner knows that that hasn't gone across well. Um, a pause, a question asking them to say it differently pointing you know verbally to an error oh is that did it happen yesterday oh they remember they need to use an ed ending so letting them make that connection themselves in their brain that's correction that's explicit teaching 
you can also you know you you can also do little little bits on the language that's the sort of stuff you can pre-teach if you want but so explicit teaching is important particularly for high level learners because otherwise they they plateau right they reach a good intermediate stage and then we we see progress stops and that's the bit and and you see this for example with a lot of um, ethnic minority learners when where a language need isn't recognized you you see lots and lots of kids um getting b's when they could get a's because the language needs aren't attended to um it's, it's a fact it's not at all necessarily related to ethnicity but that's one of the areas we see. Um, so um so i would say front load start off by building those solid foundations of of connection human connection community then you've got the context in which you can do really good um, rich language exposure and creating opportunities to use it meaningfully and then you can backfill with the with the correction bearing in mind that when you correct in a way that makes the learner spot the error themselves it's more effective than when you tell them because it just honestly it goes in one ear out the other there's an old saying in universities about the lecture is the world's most perfect device for transferring knowledge from the notes of the lecturer to the notes of the student without it passing through the brains of either and i think there's a little bit of that going on with um with some of the ways we correct students their page is full of correction and no one ever really takes it um, so yeah leave the correction to last and i think as a starting point that arc of connection through to exposure and meaningful use through to backfilling with explicit language teaching is probably like a pretty reasonable yeah basic recipe I think what you yes. said, Rob, about making them realise it for themselves. There's a lot of work, and Shirley Clark's done a lot of work on success criteria yeah. and and sharing that and constructing that, co-constructing that with the children. And then one of the most powerful things I think I ever did in terms of feedback was just referring back to that. Oh, let's just check. Does it do this? I haven't said anything else other than that. But they they then realise for themselves. Oh, yes. actually, I haven't done that bit, and I need to put that bit in. If you have it as a, have it on the board, or you have it as a checklist in front of them, and you get them to tick it off, or you get them to highlight, show you where they've done that. That's so powerful. If you can if you can do that consistently and train almost children to do that for themselves, they begin to recognise where they've missed things out, or where they've made mistakes, or where they've just forgotten something. Um, and like Rob said, that is so much more powerful than us just going around and correcting them. It's also a lot less stressful, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. You don't. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And as adults, that's what we, you know, if you're, we're given a piece of work, we always want to know, you know, what does, what do we need to do to be, you know, what's the deadline? What does it need to include? Who's the order? You know, we have a kind of set list that we um, need to think about when we go off and do a piece of work. And if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't be successful. But we can figure out for ourselves then, and then so can they, if they're along the right lines and, and what they need to do to improve things. And that's that's so much more powerful. And in terms of time, if you've got 30 children that are all doing that, that's time that you're not having to do that. If they can do it for themselves, if they can yeah. do it as self-assessment, if they can do it together with a partner as, as peer assessment, that's all means that you can be doing something else so that can be a really powerful tool I think yes that, that's really true Joe 
Um, thinking about staff sort of CPD and training um, in terms of how they can work with the children and learning sort of new skills um, for teaching AL children, what would you say, Joe, was the priorities for the start of the year for sort of CPD for staff? I think if you're the EAL lead, then you need to have a strong understanding of what um, who your who your staff are, what skills they have. That's why it's really important, like we talked about earlier, for you to know um, any other languages they can speak, write, read, understand. Um, that's a starting point. But then, other what other training have they had in terms of working with EAL learners or bilingual children or multilingual children? Um, do are they confident in the strategies that are successful? Um, what courses have they been on? Are there books they can access? Are there online um, courses they can do? What resources can they look? You know, signposting them um, in the right direction, or a more you know a more formal training course, however that you know might look in your school or in your mats, um, and really um, tooling your staff up I think so that they feel confident and one of the things I did once um, in a school I asked them um, to complete kind of like a little survey about how confident they felt and the areas that they felt more confident in and the ones that they felt least confident um, in and that was really helpful for me to then understand kind of where the training need areas were um, and look to put some yeah there is actually there's one yeah yeah, there's one that I've written. I think if you actually down the, uh, download the EAL folder um, resource, it's got lots of these kind of resources in um, that you can kind of just follow along. But yeah, that's a really powerful thing because that, and also if you do it as a survey, I've found it's, and maybe even make it anonymous, people are more willing um, to um, speak openly, I think, and more honestly about how they truly feel. Whereas if you stand up in a staff meeting yes. and just ask that question, you're just going to get a wall of silence. <laughs> um, you can do Google Forms now as well, can't you, anonymously? Or there's other online yeah, yeah, sort of anything, forms. Any, yeah, anything nice. that shows you um, where they don't have to, you know, it's low stakes for them. They're not having to share it with anyone else. But you're getting a true, um, you know, reflection then of where, your staff feel they're at and and what you know what next steps are, are in place from them and you're going to I mean if you're working in a, a bigger school you probably have got you know you can then buddy up staff with one another like you do you know with the children if you've got one who you know is really strong in this area then why not um, ask them to lead a bit or you know buddy them up with someone um you know, so that you're learning from each other all the time. I think the more you learn about your children, your families and your school community, your staff, you realise how much um, strength, you know, how many different skills. And, in your school, yeah, you yeah. realise your own strength. And then maybe you don't need to look um, externally I know as much as you think, you think you do. Yeah, in our school, once we've done sort of an audit at the beginning of the year, um, people could go in and watch others teach, you know, on something that maybe you're, you know, stronger or whatever. And that, that works really well as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think if it's more peer on peer kind of learning, again, like we just said, for the children, that's massively powerful for uh, as a teacher and a member of staff that equally some of the most powerful kind of learning and and cpd i did was we were in a school and we were buddied up with a different teacher and it wasn't for anything other than just kind of self-development it wasn't um performance management or you know related to anything else it was just go and see another teacher and you know 
focus on these, you know, focus on these things and pull out from that what you want to. And I think it, I work with training teachers quite a lot and it's something that we do all the time. You know, we're always sending them off, go and observe this person for this, go and watch this for that. Um, yeah, something that's just quite sad. Yeah, throughout your teaching career, for some reason, we don't place as much emphasis on doing that. Um, and I think that's really sad. So I would say, yeah, definitely go and see as many. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think buddying as well is just so important for new teachers. Yeah. When we used to have access to teacher voice surveys for, for what were then NQTs, um, again and again and again, EL was the area that people felt least prepared for. And, you know, while I know that in your skit, Joe, you do an awful lot with them, um, you know, I, I do a brief session or two with our PGC students, but I mean, it's, we're lucky at Bristol, we, we've got a lot of good EL people here, but even so, I mean, it's, that there's so little space in the, in the curriculum for it, that people coming into schools now, um, and we see, actually, I've seen a lot of this over the summer on social media, people asking loads and loads of questions about, right, I've got this class for September, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, just buddying seems to be, like the first place is just to make sure that that all new teachers coming to school have an EAL buddy in the staff I just wonder if there's anything else that you'd recommend for them just to make that because you could you could think about it as your ECT years having actually a, a proper EAL induction framework across a number of years to build a solid base of skills I don't think we're there in most places yet mm-hmm. maybe you are Joe. <laughs> that would be the dream that's the dream isn't it well yeah. they've, um I mean Obviously, if you're a new teacher in terms of newly qualified, so an ECT now, then you have mm. you have a mentor and you're working now through the ECF um, yep. framework. But it would be great if that included a lot more, um, yeah, information and learning and opportunities for, um, um, yeah, early career teachers to go and and make sure that they have seen good um, EAL practice. That would be that would be the dream. I've actually got an ECT, um, a lady that's an ECT, that's got in touch with me on Twitter, um, who's really interested in the AL, and we're going to do a podcast next week, so that should be really interesting. Um, so there is people out there that are interested that are um, sort of early career teachers, which will be good. And that's the key as well. These are our teachers, and this is why I feel so passionately about it. And, you know, I'm often found at, at Skit um, going on and on and on. <laughs> um, but these are the teachers of the future. So if this is what we want our schools to look like in the future, then these are the teachers, you know, that are, are going to be there longer than we're going to be there. Um, so I think that's that's an important thing to get across to them now um, so that it's embedded in their practice for, for future years. Um, and... Looking at sort of the rest of the academic year and sort of having an action plan, Joe, what would you um, recommend having in that action plan? Who do you recommend sitting with to sort of create it? Um, if you're one of those people that may be on your own as an EAL lead starting in September. Yeah, so I think, uh, again, I think in the um, folder, so we'll put a link to this folder, there's a kind of template that you can use if you've not written one before. So that kind of gives you the structure to use. but 
like Rob said, there's no good thinking that you're going to change, the whole, change the whole school in a year. That's not, you know, realistic. So think about what your priorities are. Maybe have one or two. Think about how it fits into the school development plan. So I would speak to someone on SLT or speak to your inclusion manager or um, someone with um, that senior level of responsibility. So you can work out how it feeds into what the whole school vision is um, and then just break it down into manageable steps. Make sure your targets are smart ones so that you can achieve them and you're not going to look at them at the end of the year and think you, you know, you're nowhere near. They've got to be achievable. And I think, like Rob said, just focus on one or two two things that's enough you know you might have great ideas of all the different things you want to do but realistically we all know how busy we are um make it manageable yeah. i think for yourself yeah definitely and it's worth mentioning as well like if you're if you're the only sometimes it feels like you're the only person who really cares about this in your school <laughs> and, and and that's okay right it, it's all right to feel like there's no one else who's really as passionate about this as you are and and I think a lot of people, you know, they, they catch the bug, catch the enthusiasm and then think, actually, no, we can't do anything about this or this doesn't work here or this won't work with our community or whatever the kind of the, the treacle that, that gets us all sometimes is. Um, and so I was just mentioning there, there are loads of networks out there of people who feel just the same. Um, so one of the things I think is great about this podcast is it, you know, it is a connection for people who do care deeply. There is a huge knowledge base about this. There is a huge you know, community of, of professional expertise. Um, God's mentioned Naldic's uh, regional interest. Yeah. I think they're, they're kind of the only game in town, really, um, that I know of. Um, they So if you go to their website, they've got them all up and down the country. They've also got virtual ones. Um, there are loads of... I mean, Twitter is amazing for this. I've heard that Instagram's it's great. Huge, isn't it? Yeah. You're on Instagram, aren't you? I'm, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> But loads and loads of places we can kind of get this expertise and just to just to maintain the connection for you as well we started off talking about the importance of buddying you know for kids and and your own professional sanity i think is just so important yeah that's so true i mean our facebook group as well is um really well received and there's an eal network um facebook group as well out there that you can join um so it's so important to oh, be yeah, involved in them. they're great yeah <laughs> And, um, you know, so you don't feel alone because it can feel lonely sometimes in, in this role, can't it? Definitely. So any other top tips, Joe, for the rest of starting the year um, before we finish? I think just focus on one or two things that you want, you know, that you want to do. Make it manageable. Make Keep it realistic. You're going to have loads of crazy ideas and you're going to be really passionate about all different things. And um but just try and keep it keep it manageable for yourself and give yourself some time as well. It you know, it's not all going to be achieved by um October half term. This is a long term. You know, especially if I mean it depends what um position you're in in terms of if you've got an established kind of EAL provision or if you're, you know, new to the role and you're setting up something completely new where nothing, you know, nothing exists already. So it depends what kind of um situation you're in as to what you prioritize but I think just take the pressure off yourself because it is quite can be quite isolating you feel quite isolated especially if you're kind of a team of one um which I kind of was in one of my jobs so I think it's yeah like we've said reach out to those networks on Twitter find the people that are doing similar roles um and the beauty of um yeah, the online world is that you can talk to those people across the country, across the world in a way that you couldn't really do before. So I think it's important to join join those networks, see what everybody else is, is doing. But 
um, be kind to yourself, really. Don't put it all on yourself thinking it has to be done, you know, really quickly. And like Rob said, it's not all on you, but you feel no. maybe like it is. It isn't. So, yeah, give yourself a little bit of a break, I think. Yes, that's it. And uh... we 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 don't we haven't done this before, but there can I give it just a little plug for two publications on this. Um, one is embarrassingly mine. Cause I just you know, there is a list of all the things that that I think is worth doing, and I'm I'm really happy if anyone wants to get in touch. I'm happy to just send you the chapter if you want, if it's helpful. We're doing this a lot on the Facebook group where people have been asking over the summer, like what needs what are my first steps. But the other one is a uh, is a really good publication by Naldic. It's a very short yeah. pamphlet called The First 100 Days as an EAL Coordinator. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's dead short, but so simple just for thinking, right, what goes in my policy folder? What do I do? How do I just set up the first few days? And I think that, again, is just that, that structure that's so, so valuable. Yeah, that's um, really important to point out that there is lots of um, extra reading, extra research uh, resources that we can link you to. Um, so there will be a document sort of attached to this podcast um, and we will continue to sort of put those out there so you've got those links um, and that they're handy. Uh, I'll also be writing a blog. Um, we're also going to have a Twitter live chat, so I will post that on social media so everybody can see when that will be. Um, and we just want to keep the conversation going, really, and want to keep supporting you throughout the year this year. Well, thank you both for joining me again. Um, really look forward to working with you both throughout the year. It's going to be really exciting. And I'm, I'm glad that we can be there to support you in going through the EL um, sort of lead process. We found that all the EL lead podcasts um, previously have been really well listened to. So we're hoping this will be the same. Um, any other ideas that we need to pass on before we finish? Both happy? I think I think well, just so get just, involved, ask questions, yeah. get involved, network, um, and hopefully we're here to help. Yeah, it's it's lovely to chat to you, but um, we do know we we do know people do listen to it, and um, <laughs> it's we should go all um, rest is politics. Say so we're the best listened to EL podcast in I don't know wherever, um, but you know it would be just fantastic if people got in touch. You there's the the Twinkle Facebook group. There's the everyone's on social media. It would be so great to hear from people and, and know more about um, what what you're doing and want to do that, that we could, you know, have as part of the conversation. Yeah, definitely. As many questions and as much um, sort of links between us and the listener would be brilliant this year. Well, thank you both for joining. Um, look forward to continuing our podcast this year and we will see you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by Helen Bodell from Twinkle EAL. We have over 650,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL.